Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, December 9th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, it is now official. The Democrats hold a majority in the Senate. Raphael Warnock defeated Herschel Walker in Tuesday's runoff election in Georgia. And as you can imagine, Warnock's victory has unleashed the usual credit-taking, blame-shifting, and finger-pointing that follows every election cycle. And we'll get into that today. But on Friday, Senator Kirsten Sinema threw a bit of a curveball at the Democrats when she announced that she was leaving the Democratic Party to become the third independent serving in the U.S. Senate. Also this week, cannabis reform took front and center for a brief moment on Capitol Hill and may be back before the lame duck session is over. There clearly is a growing movement to bring federal laws into alignment with fast-changing state regulations, but so far, proponents have failed to push meaningful reform over the goal line. And Elon Musk continues his quest to remake Twitter, releasing more internal communications that some say show a pattern of shadow banning and blacklisting, as well as collusion between the brass at Twitter, U.S. intelligence agencies, and Democratic campaign officials. Joining me to talk about all this are Real Clear Politics co-founder and president Tom Bevan, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and Eric Spitz, a former owner of the Orange County Register, a self-professed cannabis entrepreneur, and a frequent contributor to Real Clear Politics. So, Tom, let's start with Friday's news, which is that Kirsten Cinema is leaving the Democratic Party. She represents Arizona. She's 46 years old faces a tough re-election in 2024. Uh, what do you make of her announcement? And does it have any bearing on how the Senate will operate in the next term? Well, that's a good question. I think we're going to have to wait and see exactly what potential ramifications this decision. I mean, she said in her statement, she's going to continue to do what she normally does, which is work um, you know, with, with folks from both sides of the aisle. You know, she's been a thorn in the side of Democrats uh, on a couple issues in particular. I mean, it, it'll also give Joe Manchin some of his his power back in terms of being a, a, a power broker in the Senate. So, um, but obviously, you know, anytime somebody leaves a party for whatever reason and declaring that that they don't feel comfortable within the structure of that party and feel more comfortable being outside of that party, um, you know, it's 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 big news, particularly in a Senate as closely divided as this one. And obviously, Republicans uh, are, are cheering it, and Democrats are kind of, you know, gritting through their teeth as Chuck Schumer gave his statement and said, "Look, this shouldn't affect things, and we're going to continue to do what we were, what we have been doing, and what we're planning on doing in the in the next uh, session." Carl, you know, Kirsten Cinema, fascinating individual, doesn't make herself that that available to the press. How does this change the balance in the Senate? Do you think? Well, we don't know yet because she hasn't really said where she's going to caucus. Independence, and I'm one, um, used to really get excited uh, by Angus King, you know, uh, Senator from Maine. But he would just, <laughs> he was just another Democrat. And Bernie Sanders claimed he was an independent. Well, it turns out Democratic Party wasn't liberal enough for him. So <laughs> those things didn't turn out to be what independents hope. But, you know, when I saw this, Andy, I thought about uh, Greg Orman, my friend from Kansas, and, and Neil Simon, who ran an independent in Maryland. And they had this idea, the fulcrum strategy, they called it. And what you'd have, if you just had five or six senators who were independents, you could really make the two parties honest. They would have to quit genuflecting to their base. They would have to meet people in the middle. They have to be more where the American people are. 
And if you look at the Senate today, the two we mentioned, Senator Cinnamon, Joe Manchin, but you also have Lisa Murkowski, both senators from Maine, you know, Susan Collins and Angus King. These are people who have centrist impulses. If they could have a caucus, if they could have these five or six people, it would really restore some level of sanity to American politics, but they, they never quite seem to move as a unit. And so we're left with as I wrote, like Joe Manchin's, you know, on some days he seems like a co-president. I, I, I imagine he wasn't unhappy to see Kirsten Cinema mention that. But you point out 2024, you know, she has a primary in the Democratic Party. She may not be able to win. Joe Manchin, I don't know that he's in trouble in 2024. I will say he's probably the last Democrat who can get elected statewide in West Virginia, which was a sort of reliably Democratic state when I was a kid. He only won by three points last time, I think. That's right. But Manchin, you know, Manchin could retire and make millions of dollars or he could he could switch parties to Republicans or he could try and tough it out again. Manchin is sort of in a category by himself. He, he's just he's really respected there. But that state's become very Republican. Eric, how do you see it? Uh, I think that it's a nothing burger. I think that it's a woman who has lost her way. Uh, she is likely to lose the next election and she just made it a fait accompli. She can't win without any money from Democrats. So she's going to get all the independent money. My guess is she's getting most of the independent money that she's going to get already. And when you compare her to, say, uh, Bernie Sanders or Angus King, these are folks who have a lifetime of being independents. She doesn't. She just has a few years of kind of squirming around in the Senate and and deciding that she likes the attention of being the outlier or outcast. So I I think this was a a step back into the shadows for her with a a sort of um, a hope that maybe uh, she'll catch lightning in a bottle and maybe she'll be able to ride this to a little more short-term notoriety. But in the long run, in the medium run, it looks like a step out of the limelight. Tom, let's talk about this general takeaway from the midterms. There, there seem to be these two narratives emerging, not mutually exclusive, but certainly different in emphasis. One is that the GOP failed when it came to what they call candidate quality, that uh, Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, Herschel Walker in Georgia, were just not good matches when it came to running in a general election for their electorates. Uh, the other is that the Democrats did just a much better job when it came to what, you know, the post-pandemic uh, election rules, uh, beating Republicans when it came to early voting, absentee voting, ballot harvesting, these sorts of things. What do you say? I mean, is, is it either both or neither? I think it's both. I think there's evidence to support the idea that it's both. Certainly there's evidence that you know, some of these candidates, Herschel Walker in particular, you know, Blake Masters, you know, Mehmet Oz was his run, he was actually more of a centrist guy. His run was complicated by the fact that he had someone on the top of the ticket who was, you know, got got thumped. Um, the opposite happened in in Georgia, where Brian Kemp, popular incumbent governor, Mike DeWine in Ohio, popular incumbent governor, uh, vastly outperformed their their Senate uh, counterparts. And I so I think there there is evidence that some of these candidates, you know, turned off enough either Republican voters who who left that space blank um, or, you know, independent voters. And that's really, to me, I think where the election was won and lost, independent voters voting in favor of Democrats by two points this year, which was a, a real, you know, historical anomaly if you look back over the last few cycles. And and I do think it's the case that, you know, Donald Trump has said and, and spent the last, you know, couple of years railing against mail-in votes and, and absentee ballots and that kind of thing. And and there 
you know, so Republicans just show up on election day. And I think Republicans found out that that's not, that's not a viable strategy in the current environment. They either have to change the laws um, and claw back some of those, those allowances that were made for the pandemic or start playing the game the way the Democrats are playing the game, which is use early voting periods now that are three, four, five weeks long in some circumstances to get as many of their votes in the bank as they can before election day, because you do have things like, you know, rain in Nevada and machines malfunctioning in Maricopa County uh, that really do, uh, you know, can make a, a difference in some of these really, really tight races. So, Eric, in Florida, the Republicans seem to do pretty well when it comes to getting out the early vote and that sort of thing. I mean, is it a problem that can be fixed? And do you think the Republicans will step up and fix it? It seems fixable. It seems like it was perpetrated by some um, rhetoric that can be undone. The Republican Party seems to be good at uh, rhetoric in terms of aligning its its constituency around a certain set of ideals. And this one seems to be logical and pretty straightforward. I, I would think that this is something they could recover from. Carl? There's these two narratives that you mentioned, Andy. Um, you know, lousy candidates or badly run campaigns by the Republican Party. They are, you, you pointed out they're not mutually exclusive. They're actually reinforcing. I mean, it is easier to raise money. You know, Herschel Walker was outspent, I think, 125 million to 46 million by Warnock. But it is easier to raise money and canvas for popular candidates, attractive candidates, candidates who, you know, Herschel Walker ran as a family uh, guy, family values guy, uh, pro life. And these allegations came out drip, 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 uh, domestic violence, cruelty to his own sons, paying for abortions. Well, what's the RNC spoke? That's not their fault. And, th- and there's really a third factor that plays into. Both of them, and Tom mentioned it, it's it's Donald Trump. That, this is kind of a third explanation. It, that Georgia thing was fascinating because Brian Kemp was, this is a guy who weathered four years of attacks from Stacey Abrams. She's the original election denier. She's showing Trump how you do it. Never acknowledge that she lost in 2018 to Kemp. Kemp's accused of being a racist. The whole Georgia legislature accused of being white supremacist. Major League Baseball pulls their all-star game out of there. Coca-Cola, Delta, they denounce these Georgia. That's that's the same guy. After 2020, he's taking all these body blows from Donald Trump. Trump goes out of his way to recruit somebody to run against him. And that guy wins comfortably. What that tells me is that Donald Trump is now a toxic influence for Republicans, and it's but it's it's a hard thing to just say. Well, they should just get rid of him. But he also brought a lot of new people into the party. He brought energy into the party, so it's not that easy. But he, he's the third factor there. You look at Brian Kemp, and that that's how you win if you're a Republican. This party they've got problems, and we're not going to go back to same day voting. And maybe we should. I'm on favor. We're not going there. So they don't like ballot harvesting. Fine, but they better learn how to do it. They better spend money in the right places. They better raise money. The Democrats outraise them in dark money now every cycle. If they're going to play the game. They have to play it by these rules that even if they think they're not great rules, that, that's how it's played. But they somehow have to move beyond Donald Trump. I, I think that's the overweening lesson from 2022. Tom, you agree with that? Move on from Donald Trump. That that will solve these problems? Um, no, I'm saying that's part of it, Andy. They have to do all this other stuff too. Recruit better candidates, play the game right. But this is the third factor, I, I think. Look, had the election gone a different way, this wouldn't be a conversation. If Republicans had won, you know, a red wave in the in the House and Senate, 
uh, Donald Trump would be in a much, much stronger position. The fact he didn't, and then what's happened since then, the dinner with Kanye and Nick Fuentes and the tweet about the Constitution, has really, I think, opened him up to people who are looking for, or they he's given reasons to people who you know like his policies but don't like him or the drama or his persona, whatever you want to call it. Uh, to to find an alternative to move on, I think it's strengthened obviously Ron DeSantis, who's the guy who who has the potential to to take the mantle from Trump and and represent that sort of America first policies without the baggage of Donald Trump. So we'll see, but it's not to Carl's point, it's not going to be that easy. I mean, I you know all these folks who are declaring Trump dead and gone, that's I think a little premature. This guy has survived. I mean, he's been declared dead 150 times over the last few years, and he survived them all. But, you know, a, an extended primary battle with Donald Trump, and even if DeSantis was to win the nomination, is Trump just going to turn around and endorse him and be like, yeah, let's all Republicans unite behind Ron DeSantis? I mean, that seems just 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 fantasy land. I mean, he's going to be a <laughs> sore loser. He's going to take his base, whatever it is at that point, 5%, 10%, and tell him, you know, don't vote for DeSantis. He could do- he may say, vote for me, right? He may run as an independent. He could do that. He could do a lot of things, but but none of them will be good for the Republican Party. He's never been a team player where he's just going to fall into line and be like, okay, I lost and it was fair and square. And now you know, all my supporters go vote for Ron DeSantis because it's so important for, for the Republican Party to beat Joe Biden. I mean, that just is not going to, it's not going to happen. Tom, let me ask you one other thing about Georgia, which is that one of the narratives coming out of this is that now Georgia is a purple state or a bluish state or whatever you want to call it. I mean, do you buy that? I mean, do you think, even though uh, Herschel Walker lost with and with all the factors we talked about, the poor performance by the Republicans in terms of early voting, the fact that he was outspent, the fact that he might not have been uh, the strongest candidate, do you think that Georgia is still in play or do you think it's now a blue state? No, it's still in play. Brian Kemp won by eight and a half points. You know, Herschel Walker got nearly 50% of the vote. As flawed of a candidate as he as he was. So I, I think it's still a red leaning state. Uh, it's been trending blue. Uh, there's no question about that. The Atlanta suburbs are particularly, I mean, that's that's where this basically comes down to. Trump lost the suburbs in Atlanta, as he did in other suburbs around the country and made a lot of these states really competitive. To the extent that Republicans can win back voters in the suburbs who, who still, I mean, there's still a lot of Republican DNA in Georgia. And this is not like a situation where, you know, for like Virginia, for example, or Illinois, where Bill Clinton came in in 92 and 96 and completely changed the nature of the state and Republicans have not been able to be competitive in the suburbs since. I don't think that's the case in Georgia right now. It's still very much a competitive state. Republicans can still win there and win handily uh, under the right circumstances with the right candidates. Well, Eric, let's talk about cannabis. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer wanted to attach this language that would basically allow banks to service dispensaries and other cannabis-related businesses. Uh, He wanted to attach that to the defense authorization bill. This is a fairly typical move on Capitol Hill uh, where you sort of you know, add unrelated language to a bill. Uh, Mitch McConnell managed to keep that out. But this effort to ultimately legalize cannabis at the federal level, it seems to be gaining attention and maybe some steam. We'll see. You write about the business as well as you participate in it. What's going on? How do you see it? It's interesting. I see the situation in cannabis to be similar to the election conversation that we just had in the sense that my take on the whole conversation is that candidate quality is much more important than everyone 
gives it credit for. They list it among the three or four things that was the problem with the losers versus the winners on the Republican side. And I think it was the main problem. And the other ones are factors that lead to that. And that is what's going on in cannabis. And what I mean by that is for the first time in the history of cannabis, we have, and by we, I mean all the freedom lovers in the United States, we have an all-star team of committed legislators and the president of the United States who all want to fix something that has been proven to be broken for at least 50 years. And so it's literally a matter of time before enough people who have enough gumption, capital, power to get it done will step up and get it done. And frankly, I'm optimistic that despite the fact that it wasn't allowed as a rider on the defense bill, that it will become a rider on one of the remaining either omnibus or other bills that are needed to uh, fund the Senate moving forward. Well, let's talk specifically what we're talking about, Andy. Andy, what's so? What's in this writer that would break that would break the logjam? It's a. It, it's called safe banking. Uh, safe banking is a bill that was passed in the House four times, uh, with ultimately uh, fairly overwhelming Republican support or bipartisan support. Uh, it simply allows banking to happen inside of state legal cannabis environments. So if like in California or Michigan or Colorado, it is legal to operate a cannabis facility, then the act would prohibit the federal government from enforcing the, uh, the, the prohibitions against a, a Schedule I drug. So it's, I call it a Band-Aid bill. It is not the way that this should be fixed, but it is a way to fix it temporarily. And the language will determine the, the, the bulletproof nature of it. Eric, why are the state cannabis industry, why, are they, why does federal banking regulations hamstring them so much? You've written about this. I've edited some of your stories, but why can't they just go ahead and proceed without it? If you have a Schedule One drug, then it is as if it's nuclear. It is. It has to be protected. It has to be encased. Uh, you cannot operate in a federally insured bank. You cannot use the credit card rails that go from the bank to merchants. Uh, and there is no debt in the cannabis ecosystem. This is how the federal government made gambling, sports gambling, illegal for years. The same, the similar provisions. Correct. So it took a Supreme Court decision there in a weird New Jersey case to overturn that. But can the president just remove it from Schedule One? That seemed to be what Biden was indicating he wanted to do the other day. The amazing part is that has always been available. In fact, that is how it got onto Schedule One. So uh, President Nixon uh, in 1971 decided that he wanted to tilt the scales to make sure that he won the election in 72. Uh, he got in a little trouble for that uh, on other things. This one he didn't get in trouble for. This was his aim at the hippies and the African-Americans. And he said, I can tweak those guys quite a bit by making what they are doing every day illegal. And so illegal that not only does it uh, make it so that you can't do it, it makes it so that I can put you in jail. 
And he did that. And that has stuck despite the fact that uh, there was a commission that was set up two years later or reported two years later that said that all of the logic that President Nixon had used to schedule it in Schedule 1 was wrong. It's still around. So the answer to the question is the president has always been the first line of defense and offense. It's just it was far-fetched to believe that we were going to get a president to lead on this. Lo and behold, we have a president leading. And frankly, I believe that that was a fait accompli in the sense that we will have cannabis legal in the United States inside of President Biden's administration because he's going to force it in the sense that the minute that the president or the minute that the administration moves it from schedule one to say unscheduled, which is where it's likely to go, we have legal cannabis in the United States, which means, uh uh-oh, we better pass some legislation, some reform legislation, and that is the timing clock that is going to start or did start when when the president announced that in his administration they were going to change the schedule. Well, Eric, though, one of the reasons why there's this big push to try to get something done in the lame duck session is because a lot of people, including some of the Republicans we talked to earlier uh, this week about this, fear that with the Republican control of the House, that that will end cannabis reform until the Democrats take back over or something like that. So, I mean, how do you view that? I mean, if the the Republicans uh, in the House are against this and they can't uh, get a 60-vote majority in the Senate, I mean, how does it move forward? I I think you're going to see it pass in in the next two weeks. I would put that at a 60 to 70 percent confidence interval. I think that's going to happen. I've talked to the senators. I read something yesterday that they are one vote away from having 60 votes on a pure cannabis bill. We had a list of 18 Republican senators who were open to the cannabis conversation relative to uh, safe banking. And there are three leaders who are outspoken, Steve Daines, Rand Paul, and Dan Sullivan. They are on the mic saying this should happen because their state uh, economies depend on it in some cases, or at least the growth in the state economies of Oklahoma and Louisiana and some of these states, there's a lot of pent-up demand for legal cannabis in non-legal states. One of the most interesting sort of 2020 uh, election results that got underplayed was there was one Democratic statewide winner in Florida. And it was the new agriculture uh, secretary of the state. And she ran on a purely cannabis platform. That was the difference between her and everybody else was platform. And it was the only victory for a Democrat in Florida. So Eric, if, if it's within Biden's power to move it from schedule one to schedule two or even unscheduled, as you said, which would remove all of these restrictions, banking, credit card, guardrails, et cetera. Yep. Why, why is a federal law necessary? And isn't that a usurpation of states' rights? If, if Alabama doesn't want to have legalized pot, they shouldn't be forced to have legalized pot, right? Yeah. So, so let's, let's talk about that in two dimensions. Number one, uh, legalized pot is not going to be forced on a state in the sense that it, it'll work the same way it works in California meaning I'm not going to force you to open facilities where people can buy and sell pot. 
But what I am going to say is you can't enforce someone's right to use it. So they might not be able to buy it in your community, but they can use it in your community. Okay. So, so that's, that's number one. Uh, the, the question of whether the president can do it is absolutely unequivocally the president can. And why do you need to do other things is because it needs to be that what the president's going to do is make it not illegal. Okay, now that it's not illegal, what do we do about it? Do you have to be 21 to use it? Is there any taxes on it? Who regulates it? Those are all the things that, that need to be done in legislation. The regulation is one way to take the prohibition away. The, the legislation could have taken the prohibition away or the, regu- or the regulation could have taken the prohibition away. But once the prohibition is gone, there needs to be a system of, of policy to determine how it behaves. Don't the states already have those policies? I assume the states the states are regulating, the states are charging taxes and taking the revenue. So why, why can't it be left up to the states? It can and it will in the sense that if you look at the Cannabis uh, Opportunity and Administration Act uh, or Administration Opportunity Act, it does leave almost everything to the states except for things like interstate commerce and national taxes and the FDA versus the the, uh, the the ATF or what was formerly the ATF, who has jurisdiction over ultimately protecting the citizens of the United States? Do you want to rely on each state or do you want to have the FDA be in charge or, or some oversight role? So those are the issues that remain. But for the most part, everything is done locally. And that's really the, the answer to cannabis, in my experience, over the last six years, is even in California, almost very little of the policy happens at the state level. Sure, they lay out their, 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 their policy domain, but then the iterative process of am I, am I working on this correctly is really done locally. And all of the enforcement or non-enforcement is done locally. And that's really where cannabis falls down, is the fact that the policy starts out at the high level. It, it, it gets lower, meaning it starts out federal or, or state goes to federal. And then the local policy is the one where the enforcement happens. And the police and the local sheriffs, they're not in sync with the, the policy that's living above them. They're in sync with their own policy. Well, we're going to keep an eye on this, and uh, we'll see if it passes in the lame duck. That's a that's a bold prediction, a 70% chance of uh, passage. We shall see. 60 to 70. Uh, 60 to 70. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Like uh, buying the range of a, of a completely ambiguous number? <laughs> Zero to 70, I think. Zero, Zero to, to 70. 70. Well, Carl, though, let's talk about Twitter in the time we have left. Uh, Twitter files came out Thursday night, the second uh, sort of edition of them. This time, the former New York Times writer, Barry Weiss, uh, was the conduit. Uh, this round included images of accounts that Twitter allegedly placed on various types of blacklists. This follows the first installment, which came through uh, Matt Taibbi, which showed this sort of internal debate over the New York Post story on Hunter Biden. Carl, what do you make of this? What do you make of the media, the coverage of the story so far? Well, the media coverage, the the, the media is covering, you know, its own ass here. And <laughs> and it's not very pretty. Uh, the, the New York Times wrote, a pretty straight story about about what's happening um and the but the two corrections at the end of the story i think shows it's all you need to know about uh, where the the press is taking sides on this why is it taking sides because the media censored the new york post story about hunter biden's laptop itself 
Now, um, there were other avenues. We'll get to the FBI in a minute. Um, you know, these the intelligence community people who signed this ridiculous letter saying it had all the earmarks of Russian disinformation. She had none of them, but okay. But this here's the two corrections in the post story about Matt, Matt Taibbi's reporting. Uh, editor's note, December 5th, 2022. In the Times story, you said- I'm post. sorry, New York Times, apologize. An earlier version of this article referred incorrectly to Matt Taibbi's response to queries from the Times. He did, in fact, acknowledge a reporter's text message and ask that questions be sent to him. That text response was inadvertently overlooked. <laughs> so the reporter texted Taibbi, said, would you comment? He said yes. And then they said he wouldn't comment in the paper because they didn't see the response. That level of journalism wouldn't have passed muster when I was a cub reporter, but okay. And then this other one, the second correction says, an earlier version of this article referred imprecisely to the computer at the center of news reports on Hunter Biden and the debate among Twitter executives on how to deal with them. The laptop was brought by someone to a computer repair shop. It has not been determined that the laptop was stolen. So the Times had introduced a new thing here that it was a stolen laptop. I, I'd actually never even seen that alleged, but maybe maybe that was out there. The point here is that the media has had trouble covering the story because we're part of the story. And the part of the story we are is that you had this post, this bombshell, the October surprise by the New York Post, which was working with Rudy Giuliani. And you can see why, you know, and it was inconvenient. And it wasn't just that Hunter Biden was doing bad things. Eric knows Hunter Biden. He's had a troubled life. It was the the essence of their reporting was that the Biden family was taking money from China and that some of it might have even going to Joe Biden. And so this was actually a legitimate story that any traditional news organization in the good old days when we weren't just partisan would have been interested in. Instead, the press ignored it. Twitter and Facebook censored it. And there's a the, the new bombshell in this Bari Rice and Matt Tibby stuff that apparently Elon, Elon Musk is going through their files and revealing um, is that this internal debate broke out in Twitter and Twitter Twitter realized what they were doing was very precarious, not in the spirit of the First Amendment, to use the language of a of a Democratic congressman. Um, but but what what the most damaging thing, the, the most alarming thing that I've seen was in a Byron York story that we ran on our front page. Was that yesterday or today, Tom? Yesterday. Yesterday. And remember that Mark Zuckerberg and now Twitter have come out with these things. Yeah, we were kind of we were working with the FBI. We were working with the FBI on, quote, disinformation, political disinformation. And Miranda Devine of The New York Post thinks it's probable now that the FBI knew about this story, the Post story, before it came out because they were spying on Rudy Giuliani. And she was communicating with Rudy Giuliani herself and that the that, that this language that FBI put out out of the San Francisco office saying that there's going to be a hack and release, you know, so that when this thing came out, this was almost the FBI had prepared for this story before the public knew it and already moved to try and get the media to ignore it or debunk it. That's that's the most alarming thing I've heard in five years of this of this attacks on Trump. I hope that one good thing about the House I mean, there's going to be a lot of bad things about having the Republicans in charge of House, including I may not get to smoke weed. But <laughs> one good one good thing is that I th will finally get a congressional hearing where we can get some accounting on this from the FBI. They, they need to explain how they decided to be involved in partisan politics in this way 
and invoke censorship. And it also completely undermines the explanation you hear. Twitter's a private company. It can do what it wants. Well, yeah, sure. So is Facebook. But if the government's forcing them to do it or encouraging them to do that, uh, the executive branch, that's a whole nother deal. Carl, I think to be really subversive, you should get high and watch those hearings. They'll be fun. (laughs) Uh, I haven't smoked weed since I was a police reporter 40 years ago, because if it's illegal, I'm not supposed to do it. But, you know. Yeah, look, the the latest revelation is the one that came out last night, Barry Weiss, uh, is, is kind of the, you know, Casablanca analogy, right? conservatives and and Republicans have been complaining about being shadow banned and blacklisted and all these things. And, you know, Twitter swore up and down that they didn't do that. Um, The, the guy, Yoel Roth, the head of Twitter safety and security said he didn't do it. Jack Dorsey tweeted at someone that they didn't do it. Uh, You know, the Democrats, everyone said, no, no, it's not happening. It's a fiction. It's, it's a figment of your imagination. And lo and behold, it was happening. And, you know, Barry Weiss has the receipts to prove it. And so that's in some sense, not very shocking because people already knew or had the sense that it was happening. And now we have the proof. So, and I think we also have the, the previous iteration showed that, you know, we had the proof now that the Twitter was involved in censoring and suppressing this story. They did not for, for ideological reasons. I mean, it was kind of masked over as like, well, we're having this debate internally there was no such debate about the dossier. There was no such debate about anything. You know, this was, this was, they were having this debate because of the ideological biases within the senior executives at Twitter and whether this story deserved to be uh, throttled or um, suppressed in some way. I guess it's good that it's coming out. And as Elon Musk says, this is a radical transparency will help restore trust in, in Twitter in particular, but hopefully more broadly speaking, the media's treatment of this story, the mainstream media's treatment of the story or lack of treatment of the story has been shameful. And mm-hmm. you can argue whether, you know, there are some people who think, look, this was determinative. This would, you know, had this story come out, um, it would have changed the nature of the 2020 election, that there would have been 10,000 more people that voted in Arizona or Nevada for, for, you know, didn't vote for Joe Biden. We'll never know the answer to that. Maybe, maybe not. That's not the point. The point is that um, there was collusion by big tech and big media and parts of our our government, quite frankly, um, to deprive the public of information that was completely legitimate and deserved an airing. Well, Eric, I mean, you're a former uh, newspaper guy. What about this argument, though, that you know Twitter's a private company? Uh, they have a, a responsibility, if not a responsibility, they have the authority to um, do anything they want with their platform in terms of. Uh, what gets published on it. And uh, I mean, don't they have a First Amendment right to do what they want? And likewise, then doesn't Elon Musk as the new owner have the right to do what he wants with it? I mean, it is a private company. It does have competitors. I'm always amazed at how much we focus on Twitter when only 23% of Americans even use it. 81% of Americans use YouTube, 69% use Facebook. Um, So Twitter isn't even sort of the largest platform out there. A, why all this focus on it? And also, why is Tom chortling at me? I'm not chortling. I'm shaking my pen because I want to, because the story was suppressed on those platforms as well. This is not just a, this was Facebook already admitted that, you know, um, so all the grandmas on Facebook didn't see it either. Whatever. I just want to make that point. This was not Twitter specific. This was broad. Okay. Fair, fair point. 
But you're asking a you're asking a, a, a really interesting question relative to my having been in the room that these conversations happen in on a on a more regular basis than you would think. And especially at an ideological place like the Orange County Register, in the sense that we were hyper libertarian. We knew that when we stepped into those doors, that was what we represented. And I think that people are somewhat underestimating how often the thumb of the operator, the owner, the managing editor, whoever gets to decide what goes in a paper, that's a very, very uh, important uh conversation that can be brought to the top on any subject matter at any time. It is not at all surprising that these conversations happened, nor that they ended up where they did, in the sense that if you are a newspaper or an, a news organization, you are balancing your, uh, your responsibility as a journalist with your responsibility to your masthead to your brand, to your business. And I think that everybody, including the FBI, was working on behalf of their self-interest. And that's what happened. Everybody did what their self-interest was. And as Carl pointed out, this is the media reporting on a media story, right? The media in each and every one of those outfits got the opportunity to decide what they wanted to do with this story. Anybody could have run it. Carl? I'm not disagreeing with what Eric said, but I want to give a, a different perspective. I was born and raised in the news business. And yeah, there have always been these decisions to make. I mean, CBS made one this week. They got wind of that Brittany Griner was going to be released before she was and held the story for 48 hours because the White House said, if you print this, it might, it might, right. it might, Watch the deal. And they did. And journalists have always, whether to publish or not, you know, in an emergency situation, lives are at stake, wartime. These are tough decisions. But, you know, election time's never been one of them. But it was the last time, meaning in the no. last election, we had just went through where it never happened before. But on the eve of the election, there was a news story that turned out not to be true that changed the election. So everybody was looking at that. We can talk about the FBI. I mean, that organization is not only thoroughly politicized, but incompetent. Let's leave Trump out of it. Let's go back to 1896. Sure. When Adolph Oakes uh, determined to make the New York Times the greatest newspaper on this continent, said this statement, and this, was, this, this guided American journalism for 100 years. It will be my earnest aim that the New York Times give the news, all the news, in concise and attractive form, in language that is parliamentary and good society, that's a quaint Victorian era phrase, and give it as early, if not earlier, than it can be learned through any other reliable medium, to give the news impartially without fear or favor, regardless of party, sect, or interest involved, to make the columns of the Times a forum for the consideration of all questions of public importance, and that to that end, invite intelligent discussion from all shades of opinion. Those are words to me to live up to. <laughs> and to have a media, including a paper I love to claim its, its mantra is democracy dies in darkness. And those two papers to decide 
that a story that a presidential nominee of a major political party may have been taking money from a foreign government that decide we're not going to publish that story because we fear it'll affect the election. I, I submit to you that's not journalism. That's something else. It is, and and if Twitter, if this Twitter, you know, thing, and Elon Musk, if they shed light on this larger problem, this story is still is worth following and thinking about. I, I think it's a fascinating story, and and I, I just, sorry to jump in, but I think that that your point is is absolutely true. But now go and think about the fact that every single news organization made that same decision. That makes the problem worse, Eric, not better. Yeah, I'm, not sure. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm agreeing. Well, Tom, yeah, uh, we got to wrap this up because we went a long time, but this was a fascinating discussion. But, you know, I do want to ask you, you're the president of uh, Real Clear Politics. Um, so to Eric's point about a news organization that has to serve its reader, but also live up to its masthead, I mean, how do you view that? I mean, you're, you're sort of in the hot seat. You have to make these decisions every day. Well, I'm the president, but Carl runs the news division of Real Clear Politics. <laughs> so, and we all know, as he just spoke to. No, I mean, look, we face decisions like that on you know probably lesser scale than you know wartime and, and things like that. But sure, anybody who runs a media organization is faced with choices about what to cover, what you know not to cover. What I mean, these are all decisions that give you an, an insight into and and our our mission since we started is to try and cover as much as we can from all sides we provide all perspectives we try and do that diligently uh, every single day and we have our own reporters who who we ask to write stories that are you know straight news um, giving both sides not not crafting a narrative in your head ahead of time and then going out and getting quotes to, to fit that narrative, which is what a lot of the media does these days. And it's unfortunate. Um, I, I would just say to what Carl said, amen. I mean, I was going to say the same thing. The idea that this the New York Times is all the news that's fit to print and the Washington Post democracy dies in darkness and neither one of these folks covered this story. The excuses were preposterous. I mean, after five years of running the most thinly sourced stuff about Trump from all manner of, you know, characters from inside the government to, you know, all these anonymous sources to suddenly say, oh, well, you know, we can't verify that information. So we're not going to, we're not going to touch it is ridiculous. I think the media has been disgraced by the way they handled this. And look, from our part, we can only do what we can do, which is we get up every day and try and cover the news to the best of our ability and make sure to inform people about what the what the arguments of the day are and who's saying what and why. And we'll continue to do that. But I mean, we are in a obviously a, a hyper partisan environment where media organizations are acting more like pre-1896, Carl, <laughs> than post-1896. I mean, we're back to pamphleteers almost. I mean, it's, it is a, it's a, and it makes it very difficult for, for consumer. I mean, there are a lot of consumers out there who have their party partisan ideologies and just want to watch MSNBC and read the New York times. And, and they wouldn't know uh, that certain stories even exist because they're not getting covered. And, and likewise, you have conservatives that only want to watch Fox news and read, you know, the Washington times. It's a work in these ideological bubbles, but there still are people out there that, that, and we hear from all the time that, that thank us because they, they're just looking for some objective unbiased information, or even if it's a, even if it's an opinion article, but they're getting something from the left and the right. So they can understand what the two sides are thinking and, and how they're viewing a certain event or, or policy. So that's, that's the ground that we're standing on and we'll continue to try and stand on it moving forward. Okay. 
On that point, um, I want to thank Eric Spitz, Carl Cannon, Tom Bevan. Uh, we're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form. So bookmark this podcast, check back often. And as ever, uh, along with Tom and Carl and everyone in Real Clear Politics, I urge you to go to Real Clear Politics. Read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. It may be, as Tom mentions, just the antidote to whatever's coming through your Twitter or your Facebook feed. And a reminder that all our content is available free to our readers, uh, as are our newsletters, including the Takeaway newsletter, which will keep you up to date on everything going on on this podcast. You can sign up for that at realclearpolitics.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Waldworth.